Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Coming up, one woman trying to stem the tide of gang violence in El Salvador and in Chicago. Our children are willing to go to a gang to gain respect that they deserve and the love that they think they're getting because they're not getting that at home. But first, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot gave her first big budget speech a few weeks ago. Chicago is staring down an $838 million budget gap, one of the largest gaps in our history. Getting that number down to zero required ingenuity. But more than that, it required hard choices across both expenditures and revenues. But that budget needs approval from the city council. And before aldermen give it a thumbs up or down, they crunch the numbers in a series of meetings. WBEZ's Claudia Morrell and Becky Vivi were at most of those meetings, furiously taking notes and figuring out ways to turn budget hearings into exciting radio. Becky, before we start to dig into those exciting details, just remind us of, say, three big highlights from the mayor's budget. So I'm going to answer this with three numbers. The first is $12.6 billion. That's the total size of the entire budget. Second is $46. That is the estimate the administration is giving for how much the average homeowner will see the city's share of their property tax bill go up. The bulk of that is going to fund Sunday hours at the public libraries. Third, one dollar and 13 cents and that is the new proposed fee for single riders of uber and lyft basically if you take an uber lyft by yourself uh without doing the pooled ride you're gonna have to pay that fee and that is also joined by uh, some other charges that will be for downtown rides that go in and out of downtown okay let's dive into the hearings claudia you covered the discussion around those uber and lyft fees how much money are those fees expected to bring in So the city estimates that they will bring in about $40 million, and they are earmarking it for um, the CTA to help build up the bus rapid transit system around downtown and to the neighborhoods so that uh, there is less car traffic and more room for buses. And what did aldermen have to say about this? Aldermen were more interested in the rate of congestion, so the number of rides. And there were some pretty staggering numbers. The head of BACP said in 2015, when uh, Uber and Lyft first came to Chicago, there were only 28 million trips around the city. This year, they're going to close with 111 million trips. And so aldermen wanted to know, you know, how many of those cars stay idle um, and for how long of a time do they stay idle? Um, What data sharing agreements does the city of Chicago have with Uber and Lyft in terms of um, what they're collecting from passengers? And they also wanted to know more about uh, BACP's efforts to regulate the industry given that we are one of those cities where um, we rely heavily on Uber and Lyft to do a lot of the background checks. And the BAPC, just for clarity? Yeah, it's Business Affairs and Consumer Protection. But why aldermen care about this is because all of this extra traffic on the roads affects the infrastructure of Mm -hmm. the city. And so they want all this information. So it may seem like minutia. You know, they're spending all Mm -hmm. these hours talking about how many rides and how many are from out of state and how many do they sit idle. It's because it matters for 
how the city is going to maintain its infrastructure. Now, there has been some pushback to this plan um, that's come from some local pastors. What have we seen there, Claudia? Pastors showed up to City Hall uh, one morning last week, and they held a press conference, and they framed this Uber and Lyft fee as a fee on, on the south and west sides of Chicago, saying that these are areas where drivers are more likely to live and areas where, you know, residents have already been disproportionately discriminated against as it relates to cabs. You know, yellow cabs won't go to certain parts of uh, the south and west side. And, you know, transit, you know, red line only goes to 95th Street. And there's been talk forever about extending the red line south. And so they say that this is going to unfairly impact residents there. Well, these hearings can last all day. Um, Becky, for instance, the police hearing last Monday went from nine in the morning until eight at night. Is that normal? Why do these things go on so long? Well, that's a bit of an outlier, but it's because they usually schedule multiple departments on a day and aldermen have a lot of time to ask questions. They get about 10 to 15 minutes each and then there's multiple rounds. Mm -hmm. So the first round they call out all 50 names. If you want your 10 minutes to 15 minutes, you can take it. And then, you know, they do a second round and even sometimes a third round. That's, that's at the discretion of the budget chair. But there's at least one round in which 50 aldermen get that much time. But the other thing is these hearings become an opportunity for local aldermen to get at what the vision of a department is, talk about their viewpoints, uh, explain their philosophies. A lot of them are just coming off an election in which they've made promises to their constituents. And they want to take this opportunity to really, you know, try to to hold the people who who do work on the ground accountable and push them toward things they want them to do. Well, the city's new commissioner of planning and development, Maurice Cox, he comes to Chicago from Detroit, appeared before Alderman on Thursday. How did that go? I think aldermen are sort of feeling him out. And the planning department is an interesting one because it's where a lot of zoning happens. And we've talked on this show about zoning and how aldermen have long enjoyed this uh, unwritten rule of aldermanic prerogative, which allows them to kind of influence zoning decisions. And while they're trying to sort of the new mayor is trying to rein that in, we did hear an alderman sort of give the new planning commissioner a bit of a lesson in the concept of aldermanic prerogative that was Patrick Daly Thompson. Slight nuance. I think you tour with the aldermen. Excuse me? I think you're touring with the aldermen. Yes. You're not taking them on a tour. Because the the point I'm going to make here is that planners are great in bricks and mortar. Mm -hmm. Okay? But a neighborhood is the soul and the people. Absolutely. That's what makes our communities great. And Chicago is made up of great neighborhoods. So people come from wherever might be talented in planning, but they have to understand what is the heartbeat of the community? What does the community want? So there you hear an mm-hmm. alderman giving him a bit of a subtle lesson in like, you need to listen to the alderman um, but this and is a defer good to us. <laughs> to remind people where Mayor Lightfoot comes down on aldermanic prerogative and what she's doing about it. Right. So she has tried to rein in this unwritten rule, which again, it's unwritten, so it's hard to just say I'm banning it. But there are certain things with the zoning change process, like you used to need a letter from an alderman to approve your zoning change. She's trying to say, you don't need that letter anymore. But you hear aldermen like Patrick Daly Thompson essentially saying, hey, we are elected. We know what's best for our community. And there's a reason that prerogative 
has lived and existed in this city for a long time. And, and I need you to know as an outsider that your planners can't just come in here and be like, here, we're going to, you know, implement some new changes and build a bunch of stuff in your ward without your say. So it's kind of an inter- it was an interesting exchange to listen to, given the climate of the new mayor trying to sort of rein that practice in. Well, several new members of the city council got elected on promises to increase the amount of affordable housing. Did that come up during the hearings? It did, yes. On the same day that the planning commissioner went before the alderman, the new housing commissioner, Marissa Navarra, also did. She was asked essentially about, you know, why are kind of, there are some wards with no affordable housing and some wards with affordable housing. And she had uh, some interesting comments to share with aldermen. Everyone needs to contribute. It can't be optional. When we make it optional, that is what has contributed to uh, it. Well, it's racism created our segregation, and then we maintain it by making the provision of affordable housing optional. So how is city council planning to address the issue? There's been talks about um, changing the ARO, which is the Affordable Requirements Ordinance, which is what is set aside. So whenever you build downtown or within the central business district, uh, you have to set aside 10% of your units for affordable housing, or you could pay an in lieu fee. And largely, developers pay that in lieu fee. And it goes into a budget, which uh, the inspector general said a couple months back that like $5 million was missing from it. But that's that's a side story. <laughs> so she said that Marissa said that she was going to be more transparent in how that money is spent and to make sure that, you know, it's actually translating into new units of affordable housing and not just going to uh, rehabs or to delegate agencies. And then we're not really seeing, you know, the product of where that money is going. Well, we've just got a couple of minutes left. So I want to quickly uh, go through what we heard at the Public Health Department's budget hearing highlights there. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the Public Health Department went for a very long time. Also, um, we've got a commissioner there who has taken a lot of heat from aldermen who want to see the city reopen some of the public mental health clinics. There are no plans to reopen public mental health clinics, but there are plans to staff up the existing ones and to put city money toward 15 um, nonprofit providers. And the city says they're going to put that out to bid early next year. And I think there are a lot of people watching that very closely because they'd like to see some more mental health services, public mental health services provided in communities where they're lacking. So, Becky, what are the next steps in the budget process? There's going to be a public budget hearing tomorrow. Uh, There is a formal city council meeting tomorrow. It's the regular business. Um, They're going to have a hearing within that meeting. And then there is a vote scheduled uh, as of right now for November 26th. That's the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And that is the vote at which the aldermen will vote on the final budget and any sort of tweaks that might get made based on anything that could happen in Springfield, although that's not looking very likely at this point either. All right. That's WBEZ's Claudia Morell and Becky Vivi with a breakdown of the city's budget hearings. Becky, Claudia, thanks. Thanks so Thank much, you. Jen. We all know about gang violence in Chicago, but in El Salvador, gang violence is driving people to leave their homes, make a dangerous journey through Mexico in hopes of a new life here in the U.S. Rosa Anaya is a Salvadoran organizer with Catholic Relief Services. She's trying to tackle the gang problem in both El Salvador and Chicago with the philosophy of restorative justice. That's an approach that seeks community-based solutions to issues rather than relying on the police or the state. 
Anaya is trying to bring some of the programs that were successful in El Salvador to Chicago and to gang members currently in Cook County Jail. What basically they try to do is to help people through literacy and giving them the right tools to process their story and to be able to write those stories. And, you know, I could compare the stories written in the jails and prison in El Salvador to the ones that I've heard here. And it could be the same place. What are some of the similarities you're finding, especially around this this issue of gang violence? So one of the things that um, is similar is it's our youth, our childhood experience. We grow up in an environment that it's not peaceful. And I always tell people we know what violence is. We can smell it. We can taste it. It's a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We don't quite understand what that other thing we call peace may be or may look like. And one of the important things that I've seen is as organizations and as peace builders, we're trying to create the context that idea of what those concepts may be. What does waking up in the morning, leaving your house, and knowing that you're going to be okay looks like? Uh, Because usually, you know, you kiss goodbye to your children in the morning, and you really don't know if you're coming back home. And I, I can see that here, and I can see that in El Salvador also. When we talk about violence in Chicago, advocates also often talk about the socioeconomic conditions that are at play. What similarities do you see between El Salvador and Chicago, specifically around that, so socioeconomic issues? So I always struggle with this question because usually people automatically think, oh, people are poor, then they're violent. And to me, it's about the conditions that happen around poverty and how structurally that affects uh, how we grow up and how we understand the type of relationships that we have. And I've seen in my country and here in Chicago how people that are living in poverty and have those conditions can also be just amazing human beings that, despite the situations, always come out stepping on the right foot. But it makes it a lot harder. And what I uh, see is that poverty really is not only about access to things, but it's also impoverishing us as human beings, our soul does not get all that nurturing that that you usually would get. For example, poverty is making, pushing our families to be separated, for example, for migration. Or poverty is pushing the mothers that have to work from, you know, three shifts or four shifts, or I have no idea how, I no idea how they do it. That we share. Or poverty is really not giving people the right to education. So I can see that similarity. So this is the reason I struggle with that concept of poverty. And I am not quick to say poverty is the reason for you to become violent, but definitely the conditions that that brings to your the experience that you have because of that lack of, of your human rights, then that does create the sense that you don't have hope and that you are not worth uh, what a human being is worth. As you've been working with people who are incarcerated, there are levels to, to this work. Part of it is about unlearning toxic masculinity. Talk about that. In our context, uh, El Salvador, 
the machismo is part of the culture. Oh, that's the way it is. So, you know, why change the way uh, we've been brought up? And when they're able to question the role that it was given to them, you know, I've listened to them say, you know, I was expected to be the bad person that comes home and and is the one that's going to scold the kids because they did something wrong. I'm the one that is always expected to bring the food to the table. How did they ruin me so bad? I want to be the father that comes home and is able to hug their kids. I want to be the father that comes home and is able to listen. I want to cry. You know, it hurts when all of the things that have happened around my life, I want to cry too. And that is not allowed from us. It creates a toxicity of what concept we think a man should be. So again, like peace, we don't have an actual idea of what a man should be that has and can express its femininity and its masculinity in a positive way. Well, the restorative justice model you use really requires community to think about our role in reintroducing people to society, finding a place for them in society. How does that model work in the best of circumstances? <laughs> I I don't know. I've never had the best of circumstances. <laughs> I can tell you how it works now. Um, we have to remember that one of the first things we need to talk about is that society is all of us. The guys in the prison are part of this society, whether we like it or not. And we need to stop thinking that, you know, there is a group of people that are disposable because they're not. And we need as a society to ask the question that this is what we've created by action or by omission. And I think particularly, you know, everybody talks always about the issue of gangs and violence. And I, and I, I always ask people and I go back, what is it that we're doing wrong as a society that our children are willing to go to a gang to gain respect that they deserve and the love that they think they're getting because they're not getting that at home. And, you know, it's not to blame the families. It is a system that is pushing us away from this idea of what we need as human beings besides the economic need. And it's not only about getting things, but it's about how do we build a different type of relationship and society that we really want it to be. So some of the guys once said to me in a, in a workshop, they said, I, I, I hear you. You know, like, I want to be part of society. I want to do reintegration mm-hmm. <laughs> or reinsertion. But I, I don't feel I ever was part of this society. And I think that I want to be part of a society that enables me to be the best person that I could be, but not what we have now. They've enabled the worst part of who I am. And I'm just glad that I have figured out that I can have both. And it's my choice to go one path or to take the other. Well, I want to mention your parents were also involved in human rights advocacy in El Salvador. Your father, Herbert Anaya, was assassinated for his efforts. This this can be very dangerous work. You know, as you continue as a human rights and anti-violence advocate, what keeps you going? What keeps you engaged in this work? 
my parents' example is uh, very hard to ignore. And I was literally a product of love in the middle of the war. Both my parents are survivors of a massacre in 1975. And because my mom jumped off a bridge to try to save her life, my father came and, you know, told her about how he survived, who didn't survive, who was captured, who was disappeared. And at the same time, he'd bring poems and, and sing a song, and, and there I was born next year. <laughs> and that says a lot about who we are as a society. We might think we're in the worst of the worst moments, but there's always going to be something that drives you. And for me, it's the hope that today... You know, we keep thinking in utopia, and utopia is there to make us walk because we're going towards something. But I've learned from my children that utopia is here today. What we built today is what we need to, we need to feel and, and create the context for them to understand what the society we want to build in the future. But that's not that far away. The good morning that you give people every day is important. And that will become part of the culture, just like we have created this culture of violence. We need to create that different culture that we dream we want to to, to have. So um, my father, after he was captured, he was tortured for 15 days. And when he came out, he said something, you know, on his um, on his testimony, the agony of not working for justice It is stronger than the certainty of my death. The last one is just an instant. The rest is the totality of my life. Rosa Anaya is the coordinator of Catholic Relief Service's Second Chance Program. And that's today's Reset. It looks like the live show will be preempted by WBEZ's coverage of the congressional impeachment hearings. But keep an eye on your feed because we're still bringing you a daily podcast that'll drop at four. Until then, I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. And let's talk again soon.